You're listening to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron and Autumn, a true crime podcast about murder and murdering. But we are not murderers. Welcome back. It's like, are you going to say something or not? Well, I had to push that stupid button that says, yes, you can record me. Oh, okay. 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 I had to agree for you to record me. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, welcome back. Never a dull moment here on murder, not murdering. So what's new? What's up? You know, just trying to survive life with I think there might be some kind of weird full moon situation happening because people have lost their minds, but here we are. Here we are (laughs) talking about murder. (laughs) Totally. I mean, well, if people are losing their minds, it's bound to happen. (laughs) The funny thing is though, is like, as you and I were first talking just now, before we started recording, you had said that you had had a really rough day at work. And I had said, that I had another friend that told me that they had a rough day with customer service. It was just sort of like, hmm, what's in the air right now? It just has to be something. I mean, also maybe people are just really itching to get out and be in the summer weather. And who wants to be stuck behind a desk during this time of year? It does make sense. Also, I think that people just like are only just getting used to being out And then also the sunshine, all of those things combined together is just, yeah. yeah, It's just like a recipe for crazy. Karen's. Yes. (laughs) No Karen's, no Karen's. No Karen's, no Chad's, no Ken's, whatever. No. Oh, no Chad's. Never a Chad. Never a Chad. Unless you're a Chad who listens to our podcast, then yes, you for listening, Chad. <laughs> yes, we love we love Chads who love murder, not murdering, but only just those don't Chads. behave like a Chad. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. Our listeners are nothing like that. No, <laughs> no, not ever. We have the best listeners. Agreed. You know that we're almost up to a thousand listens. I am so excited to hopefully hit that soon. I've been watching that. I know me too. I'm like checking it constantly. We've just been so busy with the podcast that I keep forgetting to check it. And every time I do, I'm like, wow, like surprised at how many listens we actually have. Totally. And, you know, I think it's, it's been pretty great. We're about to jump off. Autumn, you're going to start this week. And then I will be following up with another mysterious one, which seems to be kind of like my jam right now. It's I'm like I went through it. a little like serial killery phase. And then I was like, you know, always old timey, but I just, I don't know. I've been going through, like, I love the female murderers for a hot minute. I've done a lot of doctors, like not personally, but just in my stories. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. He's not a doctor. Um, no. <laughs> but Google tells him he is sometimes. It's it's really great. Uh, anyway, so Autumn, you're going to kick off. Uh, what are you doing tonight? 
I'm going to be, it's an interesting one. It's going to be a little different. Mm-hmm. And it's a lady this time. Ooh, you know, I love those ones. Yes. And grown humans killing grown humans, of course. Yay. I should do like a hashtag. Erin <laughs> loves grown humans killing grown humans. I mean, I don't love it, but I prefer <laughs> it over children. Killing, so. I know it makes me sound like a huge monster. I'm like, when I do all these child cases, but they exist and people deserve to hear them. Yeah. They're not easy. That's for sure. They are definitely not. Okay. I will be doing the story of Stacy Castor. Stacy Ruth Castor met her first husband, Michael Wallace, in 1985 when she was 17 years old. They were married three years later in 1988, and they welcomed two daughters, Ashley in 1988 and Bree in 1991. They lived in Weedsport, New York. Stacy worked at an ambulance dispatch company and Michael worked the night shift as a mechanic. However, they had very little money to their name. Stacy believed that Michael favored their younger daughter over their oldest. And to even the playing field, she favored her oldest daughter and would refer to her as her best friend. Ew. I know. Although I know, but to be fair, I truly think of my mom as my best friend outside of you, obviously. Yeah, but do you think about that when you were like a kid? No, like I mean, it's it's that mm. I'm not I'm not a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. Yes, best friends. We're best friends, and the fact that she did it kind of out of spite that her husband was favoring her youngest and well, so, and kind of resenting her youngest, which is, yes, funny. that's kind of the vibe I was getting as well. Yeah. Anyway, go on. <laughs> Stacy and Michael had such different work schedules that they barely spent any time together. This, however, worked out really well for them in regards to childcare. Stacy working the day shift and Michael working the night shift. One parent was always home with the children. Though they adored their children, it didn't seem to be enough for the couple relationship-wise. They grew apart, and it was said that they both were known to be having affairs. Nice. Mm -hmm. Healthy. (laughs) Healthy. In late 1999, 11 years into their marriage, Michael began to be very sickly. He was unstable on his feet, coughing, and very swollen. He suffered through the holiday season and his family encouraged him to seek medical care as they were all very worried about him. After being seen by his doctor, they thought he was having some inner ear issues. Hmm. All I think of in my head, though, I just hear like Chicago. Some guys just can't hold their arsenic. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I'm like, he's being poisoned. He's being poisoned. (laughs) You're like, red flag, red flag. That's right. Exactly. On January 11th, Michael was home with Ashley, who was 11 years old at that time. She noticed he looked very ill, but he had been suffering from his illness for a bit now. So she thought nothing of it. It was on this day that Michael passed away from a heart attack. 
Oh my God. Ashley discovered him unresponsive in the living room and called 911. No, that is so sad. I know. Michael was rushed to the hospital, but was pronounced dead on arrival. Ashley was devastated and blamed herself. Michael's sister had requested an autopsy be done, but Stacy refused. She was confident that the physicians were correct and that his sickness leading up to the heart attack were just symptoms pointing to the fatal episode. Red flag, red flag. Right. (laughs) And poor Ashley blaming herself just because she noticed he had looked sick, but didn't do anything about it. Well, and having to find him. Right. And she was, I mean, 11 years old. Yeah, no, that's terrible. Michael had a $55,000 life insurance policy and Stacy was able to collect on this right away. I would normally say red flags, but they had been married for 11 years and had two children together. Having life insurance would be a responsible, normal thing to do, I believe, in a situation like that. Yeah. So that right there doesn't give me red flags. And the fact that he died of a heart attack sure they're having marital problems, but at this point, I'm not really, I'm not there yet. Okay. Three years later in 2003, Stacy married her second husband, David Castor, the owner of an air conditioning installation and repair company. After marriage, Stacy became his office manager. David came into the marriage with one child, a son, and was not interested in being a stepfather to Stacy's daughters. He made it very clear that he did not think of them as his own and was very strict with them. The feeling was, what mu- I know, right? Yeah. The feeling was mutual for the girls. They were not interested in replacing their loving father. That makes sense. Right. Especially with this guy who's like, you're not mine. Okay. I don't want to be yours. Yeah, no, I have no intention of wanting to do anything with you. No. Despite the relationship between David and the girls, Stacy and David's marriage seemed to be a happy one. That is for the first few years, at least. In 2005, the couple began to argue pretty frequently. On August 22nd, 2005, Stacy and David got into a massive fight. Around 5 a.m., David went into the bedroom with a bottle of Southern Comfort and locked Stacy out, refusing to let her in the bedroom or to speak to her any further that morning. Nice. I'm just with SoCo tonight, babe. Right? (laughs) And you can't come in. (laughs) She left for work a couple hours later. She could hear him snoring through the door and figured he was just going to sleep off his hangover and they would make amends later. It was kind of what they did, had huge fights, and then would make up later. David failed to show up for work that day, and Stacy began to worry. Around 2 p.m., she called the police department and told them that her husband had failed to show up for work and had locked himself in their bedroom for the day after a fight. She mentioned he had been depressed, and she was worried about his safety at this point, as he was not answering his cell phone and the bedroom door was still locked. Why wouldn't she just try to like bust it in? Like I would just break the door. A hundred percent. Like, okay, bro, I'm going to knock the door down now. Yeah. Try and stop. Yes. (laughs) 
your bottle of Southern comfort and you are not going to ignore me. <laughs> well, not after like the next day and not responding. Right. Then I would get worried. And if you were that worried, when, why wouldn't you just break down the door rather than call the police? Call the police. Yeah, I agree. Police showed up to the caster home. And as she had mentioned, the bedroom door was still locked with David in their room. The police tried calling out to him, but received no response and decided to kick down the door to gain entry. They found David lying face down on their bed, clearly deceased. There were two glasses on the nightstand next to the bed, one containing juice and one containing what looked like antifreeze. There was all, I know, right? Like random. There was also a container of antifreeze under the bed within reach of David. It appeared that he had taken his own life. The police remembered Stacy screaming. He's not dead. He's not dead. She was now a widow times two at the age of 38. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. The coroner concluded after his examination that David had committed suicide through a self-administered lethal dose of antifreeze. However, police did a search of the room and there were some very suspicious findings. Stacy's fingerprints were on the antifreeze glass and there was a turkey baster with traces of antifreeze and alcohol found in the kitchen garbage with David's DNA on the tip of the baster. Wow. They began to theorize that Stacy had something to do with his death, that she had force fed him antifreeze, the baster, when he became too weak physically to resist. Stacy was adamant that David had committed suicide, that he was depressed ever since his father passed away a few months prior and that their fight had set him over the edge. Even more suspicion grew when David had left everything in his will to Stacy and her two daughters. But not to his own son? No. Just to them? Just to them. The daughters he made crystal clear he would never consider his own and nothing to his own son. Yeah, that seems really suspicious. Yes, and the police thought so as well. The police were going down a rabbit hole in regards to Stacy's background, and they needed to know the whole story on what happened to her first husband, Michael Wallace. The detectives assigned to the case had placed wiretaps on the caster home as well as cameras. Stacy had David buried next to Michael, and police decided that the widow if she really loved her husbands would be visiting their graves frequently and wanted to observe her behavior while there. So they set up some cameras. Wow. That's pretty smart. Mm -hmm. However, she never visited. Not even once. Hmm. Very suspicious. Very suspicious. It's also strange that she had her husbands buried next to each other. I was about to say, now my collection's complete. Yes. Like, I mean, I, I, I can't really speak on what I would do if I had two dead husbands, but I don't think 
I would bury them next to each other. I just don't think that would be something I would do. I think that there'd be like family members that would want. Right. Like his son maybe (laughs) would want his father near him eventually. I mean, I don't know. I don't know, but it, it wasn't, it was weird to me. It does seem odd. Yeah. Is she going to be in the middle of them? I don't know. (laughs) Like her, like in between (laughs) husband on either side. Yes. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like the widow in between her two like yeah anyway okay <laughs> super weird detectives were convinced that she had something to do with the death of david castor and believed that at this point they had no choice but to exhume the body of her first husband michael and have a toxicology test done if they that makes sense mm-hmm, if their theory was correct they would find that his organs would be crystallized due to the antifreeze poisoning. Oh, they think she used the same thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Their suspicions were proved to be right. Uh, and now they wanted to bring in Stacy for questioning for the death of both of her husbands. On September 7th, 2005, Stacy was brought in for questioning. Stacy answered their questions freely until it got to the questions about the glasses on the nightstand. When she was shown a photograph of the glasses, she pointed at one of the glasses and stated, that is the glass I poured the anti, I mean, cranberry juice into. You've got to be kidding. No, I cannot make this up. That is the direct quote. (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. Detectives immediately pointed the slip about to her and she got well, yeah. very defensive, accusing the detectives of trying to frame her and refused to continue the interview. Before she ended the interview, it was noted by detectives that Stacy's pronunciation of the word antifreeze was very strange with her calling it antifree. They, yes, <laughs> that is what she believed that word to be. She's like, ain't I free? Mm-hmm. Although she's from New York. So maybe it was like, oh, okay. Ain't okay, I free? I, that's not a New York. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do accents. I'm really bad. Ain't I free? That's how they speak in New York city. <laughs> I know. I kind of took like a, a Southern accent mixed with like a hick mixed with like who knows where that came from it just wasn't it wasn't any type of accent (laughs) anyway (laughs) on ashley wallace's first day of college that september detectives showed up to ask her questions about her father's death and break the news to her that her father had actually been poisoned and had not died of a heart attack obviously upset Ashley called her best friend, her mother, Stacy, to discuss the news. Neither Ashley nor Stacy knew that the police had tapped the phone. Oh, no. Stacy told Ashley to calm down and that she should come home and they can have a drink after a really hard day and talk about what the police had told her. Ashley recalls drinking with her mother and the drinks being way too strong for her. 
She had a with antifree. <laughs> no, <laughs> but great guess. <laughs> she had a couple of them and then went to bed. She woke up the next morning with a horrible hangover and barely made it to class that day. When she came home that evening, her mother wanted to continue the drinks, stating that it could be a early start to Ashley's upcoming 21st birthday. Ashley agreed to the cocktails, and once again, they were too strong for her. And she told her mother they tasted unpleasant and that she didn't like them. Stacy gave her daughter a straw and told her to drink them fast and use the straw for it to hit the back of her throat so that she didn't have to taste it, but could still get oh drunk. God. Why is her mom giving her this advice? This is awful. Because she's a cool mom, Erin. She said, drink that shit and let it hit the back of your throat so you don't taste oh it, God. but you still get drunk. You know, great tips from mom. Yes. Great tips for your underage daughter. The more, you know, <laughs> yes. After a night of drinking together, they went to bed the next morning. Bree Wallace, the younger of the two girls went to her sister's bedroom to wake her up. She found Ashley barely breathing and screamed to her mother to call 911 immediately. There was a note next to Ashley on the bed that had been typewritten and signed off by her, claiming that she was behind the deaths of both her father and her stepfather. Oh my God, Stacy tried to frame her <laughs> daughter? Yes. The, the fuck? The letter, Stacey? I know, the letter stated that she was so guilt-ridden by her crimes that she could no longer go on and intended to take her life. Ashley was rushed to the hospital and thankfully survived. The doctors had stated that if she had even been just 15 minutes longer, she would have died. Oh my God. When she woke up, she was surrounded by detectives eager to speak to her about her confession in her suicide letter. Ashley was adamant that she had not written that letter and that she did not try to take her life and that she was very confused by what they were asking her. She told them that the last thing she could remember was her and her mother drinking together and then going to bed the night before it was found that there was a lethal amount of painkillers mixed with vodka and Sprite in Ashley's cocktail made by her mother. Oh my God. So she branched out. She was using painkillers now. Cute. After hearing Ashley's story, detectives believed she was not a suspect, but rather another victim of Stacy Castor. For two years, investigators had collected evidence against Castor for the deaths of her husbands. In 2007, she was arrested for second-degree murder and David's death, and for attempting to murder Ashley and frame her for the murders of David and Michael, as well as forgery in regards to David Castor's last will and testament. During her trial, evidence against her was in abundance. From the phone tapping results to her fingerprints and DNA found at the scenes and even linguistics forensic evidence. It was noted that the way that antifreeze was spelled in the letter found with Ashley was spelled antifree. 
Ah, there it which is. Which was the same way Castor pronounced it in her initial interviews with police. I mean, come on. <laughs> nice try. Stacey. She didn't even use spell check. Like, hello? <laughs> yeah, no. The prosecutors presented evidence showing how antifreeze poisoning can be identified from the growth of calcium oxalate crystals in the kidneys, and that this was seen with examination of Wallace and David's bodies. As well, in addition, they noted money as the main reason Castor murdered her husbands. She had murdered her husbands partly to collect on their life insurance and estates and had changed David's will to exclude his son by a previous marriage from the money left to him by David. Her defense team put Ashley on the stand and accused her of the crimes, proclaiming that Stacy had been wrongfully accused and that this was her daughter who was responsible. This, however, was not true. Ashley was only 11 years old when her father passed, and there was no evidence she had anything to do with her stepfather's death. I mean, what a crappy mother. I mean, for real. And that was supposed to be her favorite. And her best friend, quote unquote. Her best friend. Yes. Having searched Castor's computer, prosecutors had found several drafts of the suicide note Ashley was accused of writing. Oh my God. She's like the worst. <laughs> I know. Forensic investigators found that based on this timestamps, it had been written while Ashley was in school, proving she couldn't have been its author. They argued that the suicide attempt had actually been a planned out murder attempt by Castor against Ashley. On the stand, Ashley retold how her mother had convinced her to drink the two nights before she almost died. She repeated that she only drank the nasty tasting beverage because she trusted Castor. She maintained her innocence of the two murders and the writing of the note. Stacy Castor was found guilty of all charges. She was sentenced to 51 years in prison on March 5th, 2009. She would never see her daughters again, nor did they want anything to do with her. No, never. Yeah. Stacy, you tried to kill yes. me, mom. <laughs> you tried Enjoy. to kill me. You dead to me. Stacy Castor continuously professed her innocence and said she would never confess to killing her husbands and trying to pin it on her daughter by attempting to kill her too. She died in prison in 2016, ironically, of a heart attack, never having admitted to murdering her husbands. Isn't that wow. insane? It is. I that can't believe she tried to pin it on her freaking daughter. That is awful. Like she was 11 years old when her father died. Like what the hell? Crazy craziness in every turn. <laughs> Twist, turns, yeah. craziness. <laughs> like I mean, what is happening? My sources were Wikipedia, Murderpedia, an article on true crime and wine and ABC's 2020. Good job, Autumn. I liked that a lot. I just couldn't stop reading about this one. It was so interesting to me. Yeah. That a mother could, well, first of all, that she could kill her husband. And then second of all, that she could try to pin it on her daughter. 
Well, and kill her, kill yes. her daughter. And yes, on her. you're right. She had tried to kill her daughter to make it look like she did it. Wrap it up in a tiny bow. Oh, it was really my daughter this whole time. And now she's dead. So I guess case closed. That is just crazy. I know. I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. Well, are you ready for this? I got to tell you something. I am ready. I titled my, my case this week. Who killed Julia Wallace? <gasps> Stop. So, <laughs> so be ready for that. I'm after we ready. come back from the break. <laughs> okay. Got it. Yeah. So we're going to hear from our sponsors and I'll be back. And we are back. So as I said, I'm going to be doing a story I titled Who Killed Julia Wallace? We already have a connection. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. It's, it's inevitable. It's so funny. We always do. You know what? It's a show about the Wallaces. (laughs) It's the Wallace show. It's the Wallace show. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Who killed Julia Wallace? The mystery began the day before William Herbert Wallace made the gruesome discovery in his parlor around 7 15 PM. On January 19th, 1931, Wallace, a 52-year-old employee of the Prudential Assurance Company, left his house at 29 Wolverton Street in Liverpool, England. He walked to a tram and took it to the City Cafe, where he was due to play in the Liverpool Central Chess Club Second Class Championships. A mediocre but enthusiastic player, Wallace was an off-and-on-again attendee. Around the same time, a phone rang at the city cafe. The caller asked for Wallace, but was handed over to Samuel Beattie, captain of the chess club. Since Wallace had yet to arrive, the caller, who Beattie would later take note, had a strong, rather gruff and deep voice, asked for Wallace again. Beattie told the caller that he wasn't there and to try back later. The caller said he couldn't call back as he was at his daughter's 21st birthday, but he left a message asking for Wallace to see him about a business matter at 25 Men Love Gardens East, Mossley Hill at 7.30 p.m. the following evening. He gave his name as R.M. Qualtroff. Wow. Yeah. The address was Men Love Gardens? Men Love Men Love Gardens East. Okay. <laughs> a very interesting why, address. <laughs> you'll see why there's, I specify that. Beatty caught up with Wallace not long after he arrived at the cafe. When he delivered the message, Wallace said he didn't know any Qualtroff, nor did he know where Men Love Gardens East was, but he figured he would probably find it. <laughs> it was the depression and Wallace did not want to lose out on what he thought might be a new commission. I could see that. Yeah. The next night after having his tea, he said goodbye to his wife and asked her, as he always did, to bolt the back door of their home behind him. Wallace was headed for Men Love Gardens East. He left his home shortly before 7 p.m., minutes after his wife was seen accepting their milk delivery. Around 7.06 p.m., he was on the tram. He made a point to ask the conductors on each leg of his trip if they knew how to get to Menlove Gardens East and if they could tell him where to get off. 
Once he exited at Men Love Gardens West, he began to search on foot, asking a passerby, a policeman, and even a resident of 25 Men Love Gardens West if they could tell him how to find the address. Which is kind of weird because men, for the most part, don't like to ask directions. True, but he sure did. Everyone had the same answer. They had never heard of Men Love Gardens East or any Qualtroff in the area. Finally, after checking a directory at a newsstand and striking out there too, Wallace made his way home. The next people he interacted with were his neighbors, the Johnstons. They were leaving the house for an evening out at about 8.45 p.m. When they passed Wallace walking towards his back door, he said, have you heard anything unusual tonight? And he seemed really anxious. Their homes shared a wall, so there wasn't much that would have gone unnoticed by the parties on either side. Mrs. Johnston said she hadn't noticed anything unusual. When asked what the matter was, Wallace told her he tried the front door with his key, but it wouldn't open. He tried the back door too, but it wouldn't budge. Mr. Johnston suggested that he try the back door one more time. Wallace approached the door, turned the knob, and this time it opened. Wallace disappeared into his home while the Johnstons waited outside. He lit gas lights in a couple of rooms before he arrived at the front parlor. And that's when he found the body of his wife. Her head was surrounded in a pool of blood. Wallace ran back to the Johnstons yelling, come and see she's been killed. No. Julia Wallace's head was battered. It was beaten so viciously that the brain was exposed on the left (gasps) side. Oh my God. The police arrived around 9 p.m. They discovered that four British pounds about $350 today was missing from Wallace's tin in the kitchen, which had been put back into its place and the lid on, but no other money was taken, not from Julia's purse, nor from the hidden vase in the bedroom upstairs. Later, a cleaning woman would state that an iron bar and a poker used for the gas fireplace were also missing. No weapon was ever identified. Wow. Yeah. Within a month, William Wallace was arrested and charged with the murder of his wife. He was self-described as stoic, but he appeared unemotional in court, which made some jurors doubt his innocence because they were expecting to see a grieving widower. Right. Some observers have speculated that it was that more than anything else that resulted in his conviction because all of the evidence against him was circumstantial at best. Wow. That's, and I mean, honestly, that's kind of scary because you just never know how you would react when your spouse is killed. Totally. And, you know, he was trying, who knows, he might've been just trying to hold everything inside. Right. Or maybe that was his, just keep his personality, you know, yeah, I, I would be like, just trying to hold it together. Right. Especially if you're on trial and maybe you don't want to show too many emotions. Yeah, I don't just, know. There's just so many things that could be going around. Well, Wallace was sentenced to hang. No. But in a historic move, the Court of Criminal Appeal in London overturned his verdict due to lack of evidence. It was the first time the appeals court had tossed out a verdict on those grounds. Wow. 
Wallace was a free man, but oh wow, he would not live long to enjoy it. Oh, within two years, he died due to chronic health problems. The biggest question is, did William Wallace get away with the perfect crime or was he a victim too? At this point, there are three main theories and I'm going to go through them all. Okay, I'm here for this. The first theory is that William killed Julia. Police considered William Wallace as the primary suspect, but what was his possible motive? In short, there wasn't much of one. Julia had very little life insurance and the Wallaces weren't especially hard up for cash. According to their friends, their 18-year marriage was pretty good. Wallace's diaries from prior to the murder show that they had a pretty chill life together, and it was sometimes unexciting, but generally, they were really happy, and Wallace's entries mostly consisted of him talking about how Julia shared his interest in music, chemistry, and how they played chess together. Entries made months after his conviction was overturned indicate that he had a really deep grief over the loss of Julia. Oh, that makes me sad. I know. Well, one friend of the couple told the police there had been tension between the two. The Johnstons said that they have never heard any fights or raised voices from the other side because their walls were paper thin and you right. could everything they would know, you know, like you said, that like he asked if he, they had heard anything because he knew that they could hear everything in that other side. Exactly. There was no suggestion that either Wallace or Julia ever had an affair either. According to the police's theory, on, ju- on January 19th, Wallace left his house at 7.15 p.m. He then called the cafe from a payphone near his house, disguised his voice, gave a false name, and essentially created an alibi for himself the night of the murder. Police did establish that the call to the cafe came from a phone booth about 400 yards from Wallace's house. And one it would have been one cafe that he would have passed about the time the call was made. However, his friend, Beatty, who has known Wallace for years, testified that the caller did not sound anything like him. Oh, that's right. Because he would know. He would know. I I don't know if you were like, hey, it's me. Yes. Greg. (laughs) I'd be like, okay, Autumn. Yeah, I know. Aaron, let's be real. If I used one of my accents, you wouldn't know the, like the oh, New York yeah. one, the, um, from New York city, from anti-free, you would be like, no, that's not autumn. I'm not, that's not her at all. New York woman. I do, not, I do not recognize her voice at all. Yeah. Well, the I'm next good at that. Okay. Totally. The next day, Julius the next day, Julia was seen between 635 and 645, very much alive by the milk delivery boy and another witness. Wallace would have had to leave his house no later than 650 p.m. to make that 706 tram toward Menlove Gardens West, where he had been seen by a conductor. If he had killed his wife before leaving the house, he had only 15 minutes to do so. Then he'd have to clean himself up before going on his way. To me, it just doesn't seem plausible, especially after they mentioned over and over the pool of blood. There right. would have it been blood like a splatter. Yeah, it sounded like a pretty brutal murder. Yeah. And there would be blood everywhere. 
That's what I was thinking too. It should be noted that no blood was ever found on Wallace's suit, nor was there any evidence of anyone washing up in the house. Aside from a small clot of blood on the toilet in the bathroom and one smear on the pounds, the notes that were found in the bedroom, but no other blood was found outside of the front parlor. Wallace had touched the pound notes when he was going through the house with the police after Julia's body was discovered, when they were looking to make sure, like, was it a robbery, you mm-hmm. know, and he was yeah. checking all the places where his money was. Mm-hmm. Wallace would then have to have taken his trip up to the fictional Men Love, Gar- Men Love Gardens East, making sure to engage with plenty of people along the way. The, he engaged with a resident, a young man on the sidewalk, and a police officer. He asked them all for directions and even checked the time with the policeman at 7.45. He then went to a post office, a newsstand, and pretended to check the directory and engage the, cur- the, engage the clerk. That just also does not make sense to me. Like, why would no. he spend all of this time going to those things? In 15 minutes to have bludgeoned his wife so badly and then been clean just doesn't add up. No, I agree with you. That just isn't enough time. No. So he was then seen uh, near his home at 845 by the Johnstons. It's also possible that he may have killed Julia after he returned. But given the travel time to get back from Men Love Gardens, he again would have had 15 minutes to commit the deed, clean up, make it outside before the Johnstons left their house. Yeah. And he didn't know that they were leaving at that time. So well, it wasn't like he knew that time frame, right? Right. So following that theory, regardless of when he killed Julia, he needed witnesses to discover the body. Mm-hmm. That means he would have had to sit and wait and hope that they came out. I mean, unless he knew for a fact they were leaving at 845, which seems like an odd time to be like, now we're leaving. Right. A hundred percent. Like I'm totally on the same page as you. So Dr. John McFall, a professor of forensic medicine who served as the medical examiner that night, put Julia's time of death around 8 p.m. But he based this conclusion on just rigor mortis. And that's widely considered to be imprecise. He later changed his estimate to somewhere closer to 6 p.m. Neither time pointed to a strong case for Wallace's guilt. For one, Julia was seen alive after 6 p.m. and then at 8 p.m. The next theory is that he hired an assassin to kill Julia. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I'm not laughing at it. It just seems very, very uh, (laughs) far-fetched. The idea is that he hired a hitman to make the Qualtroff call. And the next day, he let himself into the house with a key provided by Wallace. He then killed Julia shortly after Wallace returned home, waited for the witnesses, then performed the discovery scene. This theory clears up the timeline and the lack of blood on Wallace's clothes. And the theory was strengthened by the fact that at trial, a young typist testified to seeing Wallace talking to another man near Wolverton Street at about 830, uh, 8.35 or 8.40 on the night of the murder. Wallace told police he spoke to no one on the way home. So it doesn't really make sense. Again, more importantly, 
Wallace seemed happy in his marriage with Julia. So all of that seems very unlikely. Right. It just doesn't seem that there's any real motivation behind it. No. The last theory is that someone else killed Julia. During early police interviews, Wallace named a few people as suspects. One of them was Richard Gordon Perry. He and Perry worked together at Prudential. Perry would occasionally make Wallace's collections when Wallace, who suffered from chronic kidney problems, was too ill. He had been to 29 Wolverton Street and met Julia several times. He also was known to have visited the same cafe where Wallace's chess club took place. A notice on the board at the entrance of the club listed all the dates that each member was due to be there. So Perry or anyone else could have seen Wallace's name down for January 19th and known that he wasn't going to be home at the time. Perry was investigated at the time of the murder and he provided an alibi from his then fiance, Lily Lloyd, who said that the pair had been together that night. When Perry broke his engagement in the summer of 1933, Lloyd told one of Wallace's lawyers that the alibi was made up. She hadn't been with Perry that evening. However, no one followed up on her claim. There is evidence. That's unfortunate. Right? There is evidence that two years prior to the murder, Perry made an agreement with the management to leave Prudential after it had discovered that he had been siphoning money from his collections. Some had said that Wallace may have noticed the missing funds from the collections that Perry ran for him and informed his superintendent. So then it would have become a revenge killing. There's, Hmm. I said three theories, but there's one more. It could have just been a robbery. The only thing about that is that they would have to know that his money was hidden in that collection tin in his kitchen. And Mm -hmm. then why would they take the money, close the lid and put it back on the shelf? Yeah, that just doesn't make sense. And why wouldn't you take all of it? And it's also... Well, the other, the other money was be like, you'd have to go and find her purse or find the vase that was upstairs. So that, I mean, it makes sense that you just grab whatever like was convenient, but at the same time, that is a really brutal murder for just like money. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that, that took some time to actually like crack her skull open. You know what I mean? Right. Totally. The truth is We may never know what happened on the night of January 20th, 1931, but we will never, can never stop asking questions. That is the mystery of who killed Julia Wallace. My sources were Wikipedia and historicmysteries.com. That is so interesting because honestly, I don't believe he did it, but I don't either. It's like, who did? Well, and what was the motive? Like, again, there was only $350, like our time that was missing. I mean, people have killed people for a lot less than that, but it just seems crazy. And the attack on her seems like it was so intense. Right. Totally. It feels like it was really something that was motivated by something other than just a robbery or, I mean... I guess if it was a lot of people theorized that it was that guy, Perry, like a ton of people. Mm-hmm. It was like, him. Yeah. Yeah. I could, out of all of the theories, that's the one I lean the right? most towards. And his, 
his ex-fiance was like, yeah, I totally lied about that. But nobody followed up. Nobody like double checked anything. That's just unfortunate for her that there will never be a concrete answer of what happened. Right. No one will ever know. I mean, maybe, but I highly doubt somebody's going to solve a murder from the 1930s right now. Hello. <laughs> it's podcasters us. it's us ding it's dong us. let's go to liverpool <laughs> yes <laughs> we're on our way <laughs> then we'll tell you on location as we exhume a body ourselves no wait no, hold on. no wait wait i didn't agree to that i didn't agree we're, to that. we're body snatchers <laughs> no please Yay. no no <laughs> no snatching no no body snatchers no. please <laughs> just into murder not murdering, not murdering, not exhuming, <laughs> not snatching body. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and what a weird name though. Qualtroth. Yeah. It's super weird. It's like very noticeable. Why wouldn't you use like John Smith or something? Yeah. I feel like if he was the one behind it, he probably would have used something a little bit more, uh, believable right? than Qualtroth. Yeah, it just seems like a lot. Mm, I agree. (laughs) But that was our episode this week. We will be back again next Saturday. Um, Get us to that 1,000 listeners. Yes, We have been definitely watching it. Yes. We we will announce when it happens because we're super excited about it. Yes. Um, And I've also gotten several recommendations. Destin's sweet mother sent me a list of serial killers that she had for me as well. So I'm going through that list and my brother sent me some recommendations. I've got, we've gotten a lot of direct messages with recommendations. We really love when people tell us what they want to hear. No, it's nice because I feel like I'm always looking for something that I haven't heard of. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the ones I've been, especially in the last couple of weeks that I've been covering are ones that I knew, but I've been picking them because my time has been like crazy, but I'm still spending time writing them, but I don't. Yes. As and they're enjoyable. And you know a lot I mean? of people haven't heard them. So I think that that's excellent. It's the amount of research time that is just daunting. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, let's, let me pick something that I know fairly well. And then I can do research just to make sure that I've got all the details correct. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything that I didn't know or other theories, or, you know, sometimes I find something, I'm like, what they, David Attenborough has a skull that they, I know <laughs> that was like so that. cool. That connection was so cool. Yeah. Or like the little updates and stuff that you, that, have happened. So those, yes. those things, you know, I always try to find something. I know what my next case is going to be and it is fun. So I'm excited. <laughs> you have to tune in next Saturday. Yes. And I have already like been hyper researching because it's, it's a really fun one. So oh, I love that. Whenever you get super excited, it's always a good one. Yeah, this is a good one. It's another, it's another lady killer. So look forward to that. <laughs> Hashtag lady killer. Hashtag lady killers. Uh, all right. Well, on that note, we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.